Welcome to the Impact-Led Founders Podcast, brought to you by Design Match. I'm your host, Danielle. We showcase inspiring stories of founders who are making a positive impact on our world. Join us today as we sit down with entrepreneurs who are driven by a mission to create meaningful change in their industries and communities. We explore journeys of impact-led founders and dive deep into strategies, challenges, successes that have shaped their career. So sit back, relax, and happy listening. Welcome to the Impact-Led Founders Podcast. Today, we are thrilled to have Dennis, CEO and founder of LaunchBrightly on the show. So LaunchBrightly enables customer support teams to remove the unnecessary burden of manually updating product imagery in their help centers by automating capture, enhancing those screenshots of the product features to ensure premium quality, onboarding, and beautifully styled screenshots. So Dennis is really unique because he's a serial entrepreneur who had successfully delivered a number of company exits over a 25-year period, selling his businesses to companies like Outbrain, Bizobo, and Yahoo. Dennis, it's great to have you on today. So how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. No problem. So I was looking at your history and it's absolutely amazing. You've launched so many really cool companies. And so with LaunchBrightly specifically, which is the venture you're working on now, what was the first light bulb moment that made you actually decide to go down that route? Plenty of entrepreneurs, myself included, I would imagine, would very easily fall in love with this idea that you, me, my apartment tonight, some pizzas, some Diet Coke, we get another buddy coming over, we work the whiteboard, come midnight, we have something which we believe is just great, we must go about doing it, which seems romantic, but it's probably not the best way to figure out what to work on next. It's just very easy to fall in love in life with products, with many things. What you do instead is to figure out what pain I either exposed to myself or what kind of error in the universe could I go about correcting. This particular pain, and sadly I'm getting older, I've been exposed to for 20 years straight. Day in, day out, week in, week out. You make some good product, you're super fucking proud, you want to tell the world, you tell the world, surely in words, but if you sell some of it, you'll end up with some customers, they need some support, you write a help center, and you have some imagery. Those images, product screenshots, it's really just a tool. And many times, suddenly in the beginning, it ends up with the founder. As in, I'll go into some demo account, I'll find the pace, I'll find the element, I'll do a little bit of the expect element, I'll remove some things, I'll add some other things, cheat a little bit, do the screenshot, bring it to my desktop, add a little bit of glitter. Once there's enough glitter to the point where I like it, open up my send desk, go into calm, find the article, and drag it in. It's not rocket science, but it's just something where if I've done it yesterday and I blink, look away, have another dark coke, well, engineering velocity suggests the product changed. And especially in this day and age, where everybody's got maps engineering velocity, as in the most junior engineer can push something to production today because the whole thing is so well-built, that whole process, that, well, it doesn't change every quarter. It changes 17 times a week, sometimes just little details, right? So that was just something which I took note of in my little kind of list of hate on my phone to the point for where, you know what, I should go work on that. I said, if I could turn that from a human task into a machine one and go from a few select hundred images in your help center to not infinite, but thousands of images, kind of like, hey, what if 
every single element in your product, in every single mode, light mode, dark mode, desktop, tablet, mobile, Spanish, German, all just ran at midnight, and he's going to have this repository of splendid images. I thought, you know what? Nobody's going to do it, so I'll do it. I'm probably going to die on it, like most others, and that's okay, but I'm going to go work on it. So brought the band back together in November is got the first kind of few extra engineers and it's going to help out. Now we're going to have five guys, girls in that basement, cranking along. Come in this month, we'll have the first kind of MVP. And once we have that out, I'll take the show to San Diego, present it at a conference during the early summer, get the first kind of beta users and off to the races. That's incredible. And I definitely have felt the struggle of outdated product images as a consumer. I look. And people don't do it out of ill will. I said, I see. We want you to see the most perfect version of what we have. It's just that I can't sit every single afternoon and tune those images. I just have to accept that there's some old article with some rotten image that I have to kind of replace at some point if somebody complains just enough. And that's that. We surely go in on new feature launches and kind of craft the collateral for the two articles, the hundred others one we actually don't touch. So it is something for where we don't have to sell the pain. People immediately agree. We can figure out whether our solution will be good enough. That's not the point. The pain itself, anybody who's done anything where they ended up managing that help center in some capacity immediately says, yeah, no, I know Dennis. Let me show my laptop. I got three fucking screenshots on my desktop as we speak from yesterday. So they just immediately get it. I think it's more whether we can automate the process so that the initial setup is seamless. I said, how do I point these out? How do I tell you in an easy way what I want done with them? I said, I do want some things removed. I do want to take a few actions so they can see our sexy kind of autocomplete or sexy little certs or filter or segments. I do want to add some annotations like a little square box, a little arrow, step one, two, three. I do at the end want to do a little bit of a Apple-esque setup. So can you round the corners, add some drop shadows, add a kind of logo in the corner. I just make it nice so they're all the same. Hey, could you log into my stand desk and kind of just sync the whole thing? There's going to be a little bit of work on making sure that we deliver on promise. But the idea, at least, people are sold on. So we are, you know, marching ahead. Definitely. And I love your approach to problem solving. And I think working with so many founders and talking with so many founders at very early stages, there are definitely that two kinds of founders who one who's like, ah, oh, this idea is going to be the best in the world, but they're not quite sure if it's a real pain yet. And then the ones who have been in that industry and know their industry very well, like you have with your past six ventures and see the pain very clearly. Yes. It's not always possible. And there's surely many pains where you don't have an intimate relationship, but you can empathize and still go remove it. But if you're somehow intimately related to the pain yourself, you know, intuitively, when things are true or false, I said, now I know I might be the only person in the universe who has this pain. That seems not likely. I said, there must be other people who look like me, who hate this as much as I do. I just need to find them. So I really like if somehow you can end up working on one of your own pains. And plenty of people recommending that. But it's, it's a blessing when it happens. Yeah, definitely. I, we definitely had that experience at Design Match, you know. Oh, Danielle hiring a designer is so challenging and then finally solving that pain. Oh, we could go on on that. I remember three years ago, I had to hire a designer 
I got a CS degree, so I'm not a designer. I would like to leave just enough taste to not hire a Muppet. Not enough skill to make sure I get the best one. Just don't go wrong. Ended up with Paul, who I just got married to and brought along for everything since that. He now works somewhere else. I spent some years after the exit at Google and at Spotify. But do you know, you find a friend like, take my hand, Paul, because we're just going to go places together. So that was very interesting. So I can certainly empathize with that. And I can only see how hard it must be for people for where you just design handicapped. And I'm not saying that in any negative sense. I've got plenty of handicaps. And some of those handicaps, it's just very hard where it's my job, but I'm not even sure, you know, what action to take to succeed. And there's not enough blog posts you can read to pick up a taste. Exactly. And I see that when I was looking on your job page, there's a bit unique how you communicate the values of the company and seeing everyone as makers, entrepreneurs themselves. And I feel like this ties into kind of having a fall, you know? Uh, maybe can you tell me a little bit about your hiring philosophy? I like the idea of people enjoying the journey so much so that they think not of the destination, it's not magical, but it should be as fun rolling towards it as arriving. So I try to do at least two things. One, paint a picture of the island that we're headed towards, but making sure that you understand what happens and under what conditions are we going to be rolling forward, because it's not going to be easy. And I try not to shy away from suggesting that we're probably going to get halfway there and drown, and it's going to be lonely, it's going to be dark, and it's not going to be as sexy as TechCrunch suggested. So you should have that in mind before you can get on board. And in that kind of set of values, which is never easy, we at least try to describe, even if not successful, a picture of who we are. Because if you don't like who we are or how we kind of think about things or how we want to go about it, that doesn't mean that we are absolutely right and you're wrong. That might just be the opposite. It just means that that's how we want to do it. And you should be as excited. So on that, we've written out these, it's almost like five verses on what we think you should imagine it's about to happen. And it worked very well. If anything, and this might sound crazy, in our last venture, we did something very similar. We called it a pledged at that point. Today, we call it who we are. It's the same kind of poem-like setup. We actually positively forced people to sign it. I remember my counsel looking at me like I was a complete idiot. Dennis, this is not a legal document. How old are you? What are you doing? This is why you contract us. Don't do that. That's not right. I then tried to explain to him, well, do you think people are here because of the text in the offer letter and in the PIA? They actually don't care. I actually don't even think they read it. Those who read it, I'm actually making sure they fully understand it. What they do understand is that I promise to pay them in dollars every kind of two weeks, and I should try to do that. So they're not here for that. So now that we agree on them not being here for the offer letter, why are they here? Probably because of this other document. And this other document, if that is why they're here, they probably should sign it. If they do sign it, there's something with ink on paper where, well, this is real. I put my name on it. It doesn't mean that you're going to get sued or do not being uncomfortable in the dark together with Dennis. It means that you committed to it. I remember, sorry for ranting on here, like four ventures ago, nobody should do this. And we were too young, too stupid. 
still trying to figure out how to build a good culture. Here we had for new makers that arrived, it was stupid, but we did it anyway. So I can talk about it now. We're not going to do it again. But back where remote was not really a setting, everybody turned up in the office, right? It's not really that many moons ago that that turned into an option, right? So there was a time where if you got a job, there was an address attached to it. If there was not an address, you don't have a job. So it was that simple. So you would arrive on address and there'll be uh, two kind of piles on your table and unassembled desktop PC, like memory, chip, motherboard, cables, and what have you. And there'll be a printed out error in the application, as in the application we were engineering. Your job now, before you can go home on your first day, is to assemble this computer, install the whole thing, download the code base, understand to the degree where you can understand the error, fix the error, and push it to production. Once you've done that, you can leave. We had people who died on that. It was uh, too dramatic. Like it was, so for some people, it was like a 20 hour endeavor on their first day. Like come in early, you leave at midnight. Who had assembled a computer even at that point some years back? Sure, I did it like 20 years ago, but nobody really does that unless you're a hardcore gamer in this day and age. So my point was coming back to what I said before. When one of these individuals quit like three days later, he left a few things uh, on his desk. It's kind of like uh, almost uh, Hollywood style. He left his key card, which could have been gun and badge. It was the key card to the office and the pledge that he signed saying, Dennis, I see now what you were trying to explain. I respect it. It is not for me. And it was not the offer letter. It was not one for where I expect to be paid at least 14 days of salary, even though I quit today or whatever the terms might have been or not have to pay back my kind of sign on bonus. None of that. Just. Sure, we're going to let you keep that. We're going to pay you that. Forget about all of that. It was just wonderful where I now understand what you tried to tell me. I didn't read into it enough. Even though the whole interview process was wonderful where, no, I'll sit here in silence while you read it. You look me in the eye. We sign it. We try to talk through each of the verses. But that was the one thing for where he was disappointed in himself, not fully understanding what at that point was a requirement of this particular journey. A little too aggressive, uh, but it's the same commitment today, just not one for where you have to spend 20 hours on your first day assembling a computer, fixing a bug in the application, but it's one for where if you read through those, I hope you spotted an ethos of who we are and they're tense, they're committed, they're enthusiastic, happy, but eager to kind of uh, apply, get some grit as in, I could, I could work with these people, stay here, they can, but if you're one of those, go apply, right? So uh, I spent a fair amount of time on what seems not very tangible because it works very well as a disqualifier. I said many people will look at it and say, silly, like these people are odd. Good. You shouldn't work here. And some people will fall in love. Fantastic. We should talk. Definitely. And I could just imagine that that team, that culture experience goes into the product as well and allows the users to kind of become obsessed with the product as well, and obsessed with creating best experiences. So you can make many things in life, but one of the few things that are hard or almost impossible to fake is honest enthusiasm. You actually have to be really good at sales or interviewing candidates or many other things for where there's surely a good and great process you can go apply and try to adopt it, surely, but on sheer enthusiasm, you can get very far. And I like 
that if you are not enthusiastic, like visibly enthusiastic about making product features, and that sounds like, Dennis, don't put those two words together, right? That sounds stupid. No, as in, if you don't think, oh, this is just one of those little puzzles in the universe where I think I can go correct it. And that alone is exciting and it's a little bit dangerous. And you know what? That's why we're kind of excited about it. Then uh, at least in the earlier part of the journey, you shouldn't be a participant. That doesn't mean there's not plenty of roles later on that are a little bit more uh, coordinated and the role of a kind of specific SCR for a specific kind of segment with a specific set of processes is not more just like a job, hopefully in a good company with a nice culture and a great manager, but it's more of a job-like setting where early on, it's a different set of commandos you're looking for. Have you always been inclined towards entrepreneurship, like from the start of your career? It wasn't, funny enough, my initial plan, but I ended up, I think by chance, perhaps not. It's the whole kind of nature versus nurture thing. So my dad, my uncles, my cousins, all entrepreneurs in some capacity. And all I wanted was just to get my CS degree and go work for idea. I said, I've seen plenty of six-day work weeks, home at 10, fall asleep in front of the telly from my dad to know, oh, that's not for me. I'm going to go home at four and have my kind of six, seven weeks vacation from Scandinavia and be happy. And somehow I ended up doing a venture right out of college. And here we are, 26 years later, working on my sixth venture. And it's all I've done. I, don't, I never had a job. I never applied for a job. I've only done my own ventures. And surely, uh, post-exit, been in corporate settings, but under that kind of uh, umbrella of that being the acquired founder, and you kind of have a free PhD on the product, which you're the one who knows the most about it, entering every meeting as the expert. So it wasn't really the plan, but somehow that's how it played out. And I'm very happy about it. We had someone on the podcast who was talking about their home life and kind of the access to books when they were kids. And, on, and access also to entrepreneurial parents and kind of how that shaped them as an entrepreneur. And I actually saw you post something about it on your Twitter. And so I was wondering if you had, if you feel like there was, even though this wasn't your plan, kind of like something that was implanted in you a little bit. <laughs> Coming back to the nature versus nurture part for where I can't remember a particular moment or evening for where me and my dad talked about what entrepreneurship is all about. I can't even remember him using a, a word that rhymes with that. Like it wasn't, a st he just ran a business. It wasn't a startup or anything like that, but we didn't talk about it, but I certainly was either asked or forced, like you can do as a parent, to work in that on Saturdays and weekends and other things where, hey, we need a helping hand. That is you. So somehow you get exposed to it and you get exposed to the, back in his day, I remember he was just of that generation for where the credit card, which was not as visibly introduced in Europe as in the US. I actually remember at the point where he went from cash only to also having credit card receipts as in that was a thing. Outside of that, I remember that picture every night coming home, he would kind of unload cash extracted and my mom kind of counting it and kind of for bills and this and that kind of like a cash business. I had a kind of this very visible kind of uh, exposure to, oh, you go out, you hunt, you do some work and you bring back money if you do well. Then mom counts them up, the workers 
get their cut, that's that pile, that's that pile, and then tomorrow we do it again. And some days are better than others, today was not good, uh, this is bad, like got exposure to some risk. They had a kind of, uh, this old fruit has this thing for where it's great on day one, but not so great on day 10. So you have some risk attached to it for where if what you had imagined don't play out, this is the loss attached to it. So I could, we never talked about it, but I could certainly see the, but certainly the exposure to the fact that we bought something which we now might not be able to sell for the price which we bought it. So you're right, you're probably right. And I actually never thought it through in full. Where were the original seeds? But I'm sure if somebody did a study that the likelihood of you becoming entrepreneurial is just much higher if you grew up in a entrepreneurial setting. There must be some study that confirms that. The one I'm really is there's an increase if you come from somewhat dysfunctional families because there's a want to bring order to things. And many times, certainly a startup is trying to bring order to the unorganized. Wow, I have never heard of that study, but that's super duper interesting. I think when we look back to try and see how we're shaped, I know when I was a kid, my dad's an entrepreneur and he works in finance and he'd be like, Danielle, what do you do when the stocks drop? I'd be like, buy low and sell high. On my way to kindergarten, like just so I've tried. So I have two daughters, just like you, and I've tried to bring them along, and in general, just try to bring my family into it because there's all this talk where I can empathize with the idea, not the execution of you having to make sure you have a private life and a work life and a separation of the two to not see one or the other suffer. I can see what you're trying to do. I'm just not too sure. That's the best way to go about executing on that. Because you really only have one life and you're only one human being. And you should try just to be a good human being. So if your work life does so much damage to your personal life, then I'm not sure you're having the right work life. Or if your personal life doesn't allow you to have any form of success or ambition, I'm not sure you're in the right type of relationship. So you should try, probably just try to drill one life. And by doing that, I've always told my family, right into it. I said, I would hire my wife. She would sit at the office or bring my kids. They'll do their homework at the office. I would bring them to meetings. I said, I've done, I've raised capital with my daughters in the room. I said, I've had really fun meetings. I remember we raised some capital from SoftBank uh, many years ago. And my daughter must have been at that point. They're both in at university now. 10, 9, 10. So she was sitting in a corner with a notebook. And I could see they couldn't figure out what's wrong with Dennis. Why did he bring his kid for what is obviously a very important meeting? We did succeed at raising capital, so we were successful. But why did he bring his daughter? What is she doing? What is she writing? Something fishy is going on here. So I did that for many things. I remember when we negotiated the exit to Yahoo and we had some of the kind of post-exit meetings. I brought her as well. And remember, we sat at the Yahoo office, me, some other dude, her. Do you want to go play kind of foosball? No, I'll just sit here and listen. As you kind of draw and take notes and what have you. It was uh, so very fun. But I've done that a ton. Some of it they didn't like. They certainly liked the, the little kind of business trips. Ah, oh, I have to do a demo or presentation or sales trip in Austin or San Diego or Vegas or what have you or back Europe. Hey, it's going to be mostly airport meetings, taxis, a little bit of hotel, and we'll do the high street. But that's it. Yeah. So uh, there we go. So I could see how, well, that's what I hope, that they got smitten 
I'll tell you in, uh, in 10 years whether I succeeded. I think it's incredible what I'm seeing kind of like an ethos and like, let me know if this is accurate, but I'm seeing this within your personal life, how you structure your businesses and teams, kind of like there is not this duality. Like if you're working in your company, you should be excited about what you're working on. You know, it's not that you're just excited about engineering and then you work at this company. You should be excited about the problem you're solving with your family. They should be integrated into those problems you're solving and kind of like this. I feel the imagery I'm getting is this like very holistic feeling around work and life. It doesn't mean that I've been successful at all times in executing on that, but I do believe in it. Sometimes you'll make mistakes and you'll talk a little bit too far on one or the other side and kind of just correct them there, which is very hard, especially early on, where you are fighting on all fronts at work all day, probably just uh, adding a few extra hours than the traditional job. Then you get home. If there's no inclusion, then you fight again. Another front that is just sounds very draining or almost impossible. I said, you're just dying on that. You need a little bit of love, tender, and care here. And someone's going to help lift you up. 100%. So, what is maybe a piece of advice you would give to an early stage founder? There's a million things, a few things, perhaps. One, a career advice, I think, could be to imagine entrepreneurship not as a single trip you take and then go look at that as in, I can take that off my bucket list. I've now tried to be a startup entrepreneur in some capacity, but think of entrepreneurship as a lifelong career. Like any other careers, if you do it for long enough with a little bit of effort, you will progress and move upwards and to the right. As in, you should be a better entrepreneur on Friday than you are today. Now what? Just a little bit. You were for years on hand. You might even be good at it. You do it for decades, you might even end up being great, like any other profession, which you spend an unfair amount of time on. So I do think you perhaps at least allow yourself to imagine, well, what would a lifelong setting of entrepreneurship look like? And is that something I could get married to? Because if it's a single journey, perhaps it's not for you to be the founder crash. You just would like to get exposed to it early stage startup and some of the thrill of being on this borderline suicide mission, go do that for a couple of years and learn a ton of things on building product from scratch, zero to one, and use that to go sit in a slightly more corporate setting. Nothing bad with that at all. But I do think the career advice would be, it's, it's not just three years. You're running a 50-year fund where most of your investments and your investments will be in time and energy and so on and so forth will not pay off. They will probably just all go completely belly up. Just like go look at any investor and that's at the end of their funnel. Like they invest, what, 20 companies a year. Before that, they probably spoke to 300. Before that, they probably looked at 3,000 some kind of pictures. So this is the cream of the crop at the very bottom. And even the cream of the crop, 15 dogs. So even if you suggest you're the cream of the crop, you're probably going to die. Even if you somehow with an unfair amount of hubris think, no, 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 I'm actually not in the three that go sideways. I'm in the two winners of the 20 where I most die. Well, good on you. I uh, respect your confidence, but that seems unlikely. So if that is not likely, you should probably think of it not as a VC investing over four years, but you investing over 50 years. You can probably eight or nine, some odd ventures, but come the end of it, perhaps one or two of them were successful. And if one or two of them are successful, that should just be enough where you can extract some monies 
from that pocket to say that paid for the journey. But you must also love the journey. As in, if not the journey, as in, you just play for the love of the sport. Anybody who does anything great in sport, if you want to use that as an analogy, probably did it for the love of the sport, not for the trophies. As in, it's not, yeah, all I wanted was just a gold medal at the Olympics. Okay, that seems like the wrong mission to be on. It should probably be because you love just doing A, B, or C. That would be my one advice. The second advice would be if somehow, very early on, you have enough luck, skill, talent, timing, to stumble into something that smells a little bit like an exit, even half an exit, or even just a slice of an exit, take it. Any VC would immediately say, don't do what Denny said. But if you take it, would you get at least two things? One, you get a few monies in your pocket. Doesn't even have to be much. Just a few monies in your pocket that buys you a little bit of freedom to not stress, which is great. That means you can now get started on your 50-year fund. So you get what's called this kind of magical entrepreneurial exit card. If you have one of those, if very few have it, you can walk that around town because it's really a key. It opens any door to talk about new ideas, pitch investors, to get co-founders, to hire people. This key unlocks a ton of things because it almost doesn't exist. Most people haven't seen it. They've heard about it. They've read about it on TechCrunch, so elsewhere, but they haven't seen it. So if you can somehow see that materialize on some small, tiny, in the grand scheme of things, for other people insignificant, but for you grand, mini exit, take it. There's Ava Dennis. And I was saying this with the utmost respect, because some people say Ava Dennis, that's a staggering amount of money. Let's say you have an exit for, we'll pick an amount here. Just could be any other number. It doesn't matter. I'm not suggesting anything. So $1.7 million, 500K. $8 million, like something for where that is almost by definition a failure if you had institutional investors. As in, they don't care. They actually rather you triple your risk and go tits up because at least there was a chance it could turn into something bigger. So that means they are uninterested. For you though, you founders, you worked on it for you know enough years, so it's kind of long-term gains, pay a little bit of tax, not much, but you go now free for it. Well, I cut down my own personal burn. I could sit here in this room for the next six, seven years. Just kind of fooling around on stuff I think it could be nice to solve. Right? Just take it. So, yeah, those will be two kind of strong recommendations. One, I think you can execute on just by choice, lifelong career and entrepreneurship. The other one is obviously being very lucky on the first one being willing to accept that you don't have to drive it all the way to the point where you go and I'll ring that bell over at the exchange. You just take the 800K or take the 2.1 or whatever the amount was. Wow, that's brilliant advice and really unorthodox, I think, to hear that. Even other founders will say, you so rarely get to something that resembles product market fit. So whenever you see something that just rhymes with it, where somebody made you an offer, it's probably because you suggest it. It is rare to sell the raw IP and you didn't kind of get the customer. It's not for your revenue. It's just the fact that the customer and the revenue proves that what you have is a value. They can apply the acquiring machine and their multiplier. Yeah, we'll do this a thousand times over. But you haven't really shown that yet. But they'll suggest, oh, just spend another year and you can kind of double it. Or spend another two years. Yeah, but you could die. Like, the world will just kind of uh, change. You wake up one morning and... 
you were in the in-person event space, COVID arrives. We should have done that exit because now we're toast and you die. Or something else, like we've seen it a thousand times, right? So yes, that's perhaps slightly unorthodox, but do it. I love it. And then the last question here, just outside of your work life, which I know is integrated into your home life, but what kind of activities do you like to do in your free time to kind of recharge, stay creative? Good question. Not this, but I'll tell you anyway. I actually just bought a foosball table for my living room. I somehow persuaded my wife to agree to that. So there's that, but not, let's leave that aside. I expect to become an expert in the next uh, five months. I'll come pay you. Yeah, exactly. Here's one thing I've done. I see plenty of people who can set aside tens of minutes in the morning or elsewhere to go sit and meditate and be successful with it. I've not been able to uh, recreate that. What I do do, though, which I think is probably in the same uh, category, is that, oh, where do you live, Daniel? Mexico. Mexico. Okay, I live in Manhattan. So I live uh, downtown on the southern tip, right on Wall Street. So I take the subway all the way up to the other end, which is about, what, 20, 25 kilometers. That's the kind of size of the island. And walk back. No uh, podcast, no music, no phone, no nothing, no agenda. Just something for where you do a little kind of four and a half, three hour trek through the city. Then I'll cross the park. I'll take one avenue. I'll take another one. And what it does for me, and there'll be other versions of this, but you, you'll just create your own version. But my version is one where during the week, you have all these kind of uh, boxes you kind of pull out and the shelves are all kind of messy. Then I try to kind of just clean up a little bit. Like, oh, okay, I need to put things into the kind of package of the right boxes, put them back into place. Ooh, here's a new thing. I had a new shelf, a new idea. Okay, should we think about that? And just the whole trip for where don't stop and take notes. Just like have things be rearranged and ordered. Then I come back. It'll cost me like, you know, 800 to 1,000 calories. I can get a free burger, win-win, sort of things out a little bit. And that's been my kind of go-to. And I've done that. I'd like to say I do it every weekend. That would be a lie. But let's say I do it every second or third weekend. Just long walk. That's incredible. I love that whole defragging process. Just like letting... That's exactly what it is. So anybody who had any memory or even seen the video on YouTube of defragging their magnetic discs back in the day, that was like hypnosis. I could start it and just sit. It was just such a nice feeling. Oh, yeah, my disc is just perfect now having defragged it. So uh, it is exactly like that. I'll start to use that analogy instead. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rad, for being on the podcast today. I could talk to you forever. I really love your energy and kind of what you're doing with your team. And if people want to find out more about you, where should they go? They should do two things. One, I have everywhere on the internet under at Dennis Mortensen, from emails to social to what have And you'll see this face, so you'll be able to find me. I tend to be very open for input, critique, commentary, ideas, candidates. So feel free to kind of reach out. They should immediately go to launchbrightly.com. Imagine some pain they might have on their help center, they themselves and or somebody in their support or and say, hey, go check this out. I think uh, Dennis might be onto something. That would be lovely. Amazing. And all this will be in the show notes as well. Well, thank you so much, Dennis. And I hope you have a great rest of the day. Time well spent. Cheers. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Impact-Led Founders Podcast brought to you by Design Match. To learn more about Design Match, visit designmatch.io. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review and share this with your network. We love hearing from our listeners and each review helps us share the impact that our guests are making in this world. Also, make sure you search Impact-Led Founders in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure you click and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes I'm your host, Danielle. Thanks so much for listening.